Well, good morning and uh, welcome to uh, another day studying the Word of God and uh, continuing our journey through the book of Colossians uh, today. Now, just a quick reminder, if you've not subscribed to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards, please go ahead and do that. Uh, my Facebook page, Anthony P. Richards. And also my Instagram page, AP Richards. And uh, I, I encourage you to use those to share these videos uh, as much as possible. Please comment on them because your comments really do encourage so many other people. I love it that we get to dive into the Word of God together so that we can see how we can apply it to our lives. It's hard to apply the Word of God if you don't understand it. And that's all I'm trying to do is rightly help you rightly divide the Word of God yourself. And, and I encourage you to listen to it. You pray over it and, and listen to the Holy Spirit for yourself. I'm just trying to play my part as a pastor to help you understand uh, some parts of the Word of God that sometimes can be difficult to understand. So let's uh, look at Colossians chapter 3. Now again, I'm going to break Colossians chapter 3 up into two halves, two natural halves. Why? Because there's so much in them. And I don't want to I don't want to rush through things just for the sake of trying to make a video shorter. So we're going to do this in two natural halves. The two natural halves of Colossians 3 are verses 1 to 17 and then verses 18 to 25. They're almost two they, they could be two different chapters. So that's what we're going to do. Verses 1 to 17 today. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Paul here begins a section where he focuses on practical Christian living. Okay, so first half of Colossians, very doctrinal, very theological. Now he's starting to get very practical. And he's talking about here that having a clear understanding that practical Christian living is built on the foundation of theological truth. Because we know that Jesus is raised from the dead, then our identification with him becomes real. And it's only because we're raised with him, uh, with Christ, that we can seek those things which are actually above. Now, the idea of being raised with Christ was introduced back in verse 12 of chapter 2 of Colossians, where Paul used baptism to illustrate this spiritual reality. Now, seeing that we are raised with Christ, there is certain behaviors that are appropriate to us. Now, the opening verses of chapter 3 here, uh, they, they sustain, Curtis Vaughan says this, they sustain the closest connection with the closing verses of chapter 2. There, the apostle reminds the Colossians that ascetic, that, that's people who try to live lives of legalism, uh, Colossians, that ascetic legalistic regulations, there of no real value in restraining the indulgence of the flesh. The only remedy for sinful passions is found in the believer's experience of having a union with Jesus Christ. Uh, David Guzik says this, uh, because we were raised with Christ, we should act just as Jesus did when he was resurrected. After his resurrection, Jesus left the tomb. So should we. We don't live there anymore. After his resurrection, Jesus spent his remaining time being with and ministering to his disciples. So should we live our lives to be with and to serve one another. After his resurrection, Jesus lived in supernatural power with the ability to do impossible things. So should we with the power and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. After his resurrection, Jesus looked forward to heaven, knowing he would soon enough ascend there. So should we, recognizing that our citizenship is in heaven. To emphasize it even more, Paul adds the phrase here, sitting at the right hand of God. 
It's actually a phrase that alludes to what uh, the psalmist talks about in Psalm 110. And it focuses our attention on the sovereign rule that Christ now exercises. Verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. The best Christian living comes from minds that are fixed on heaven. They realize that their lives are now hidden with Christ in God. And since Jesus is enthroned in heaven, their thoughts and hearts are also connected to heaven. Uh, Curtis Vaughan, earthly things are not all evil, but some of them are. Even things harmless in themselves become harmful if permitted to take the place that should be reserved for the things above. Verse 3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The promise of the return of Jesus is not only that we will see his glory, but so that we will also appear with him in glory. That's the revealing of the sons of God mentioned in Romans chapter 8. Christ, who is our life, um, is is a reference here, that, that's, that, that statement by Paul here, Christ who is our life, uh, is the same kind of statement that he made in Philippians 1, where he said, uh, for me to live is Christ and, and to die is gain. Uh, this is where he's showing the idea that it's not just for special apostles, it's for all believers. Verse 5, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Now what are they? Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Um, therefore, when he says therefore, points back to our identification uh, with the risen and enthroned Lord Jesus that he's just talked about in the first four verses of this chapter. It's because we understand the first four verses that we can put to death the things in our life that are contrary to our identity with Jesus. Now, the verb here that's used, Vaughan says this, the verb necroscate uh, means literally to make dead. It's a very strong verb. It suggests that we are not simply to su suppress or control evil acts or attitudes, we're to wipe them out, completely exterminate the old way of life. Um, now, there's an importance. Why does Paul list these words here? and name these sins in this section. N.T. Wright says this, It is far easier to drift into a sin, which one does not know by name, than to consciously to choose one whose very title should be repugnant to any Christian. Now, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, let's talk about some of these. Each of these terms refers to sexual sins. Covetousness is simple. Uh... And what it is, it's simple insidious greed is what it is. And it's nothing less than idolatry. There is no way that Jesus himself would walk in any of these sins. So if we identify with Jesus, then we won't walk in any of them at all. None. Verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. This is a strong statement, okay? This is real, real deal stuff here. The sins mentioned in the previous verse are part of the way that the world lives. They're not the way that Jesus lives. Every Christian is faced with a question. Who do I identify with, Jesus or the world? Who do I live like, Jesus or the world? And the, the, the wrath of God is, is 
coming upon the sons of disobedience. You, you don't want to be a part of this. These sins invite the wrath of God because the world does not love this kind of sinful lifestyle. Okay, It does love this sinful lifestyle. Um, and because they love it, they don't want to come humbly to Jesus. So they continue in their sins. And what does that do? It adds to their condemnation. See, one sin is enough to send anyone to hell. One unforgiven sin, you know, James 2, you, you can read it. Uh, but there are greater levels of condemnation. You know, we don't always think about that. Let me, let me read to you uh, Matthew 23, verse 14. Woe to you, this is Jesus speaking. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Look, I don't want to be condemned, let alone receive greater condemnation. That kind of scares me. Um, in part, the wrath of God comes as God allows men and women to be sinful. Uh, we always have free will. We always will. We, you know, we have since the garden. We have now. Um, and God doesn't want us to continue in self-destructive behavior. Verse 7 in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. These sins, uh, they, they mark a world that is in rebellion against God. But they are meant to be in the past tense for a current Christian. Simply put, uh, a Christian should not live like the sons of disobedience. A true Christian cannot be comfortable with habitual sin. And you must deal with it and get freedom. And you can only get freedom in Christ. Those who the sun set free are free indeed. Verse 8. Uh, but now you yourselves are to put off all these. And then he lists a new list. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you put off the old man with his deeds. This is all about to get very real, people, as we're talking about this together. I can sense the uncomfortability of many people right now just watching this video. The sins that Paul lists here, anger, wrath, they're regarded as little sins. So many Christians just say, well, that's not really, I'm not, I didn't murder anybody. Um, and Paul challenges us to put off the old man in every area of our lives. Now think about this. Um, Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. Do not lie. Each one of those sins are prim primarily committed by our tongue and what we say. And when Paul calls the believer to a deeper obedience, he says, bridle your tongue. Just as James did in James chapter 1 and James chapter 3. Bridle your tongue. Grab a hold of it. Stop it. So let me tell you something very straightforwardly. If you're a Christian and you swear, stop it. Don't ever do it again under any circumstance ever. And stop justifying it and making it, making it somehow coming up with some theology that you're just cool. Oh, yeah, I don't feel the, con the condemnation of God. Well, you've turned off your conviction of the Holy Spirit because the Word of God has told you one thing. So if you believe something else, you're believing something contrary to the Word of God. And that did not come from the Holy Spirit and it did not come from Jesus. So you need to stop it. Let me tell you something. I guarantee you, you, you if, if you're a Christian who swears, if Jesus was standing in front of you, no way in the world would you swear. All the money in the world, I bet you you wouldn't. So, if you won't swear when Jesus is in front of you, why have you grown comfortable with swearing when Jesus is inside you? Okay, 
little moment of conviction there. Okay, that's my job as a pastor. That's what I have to do every now and then. Okay. Now, Paul says, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, the, 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 the more notorious sins, you know, things like fornication and adultery um, in, in verse 5, they're, they're seen as easily incompatible. Yeah, we can see why they're incompatible with the nature of Jesus. But these lesser sins, they are also incompatible. So you have to put them off too. And in this section, Paul shows two very high priorities in Christian living. And I'll tell you what they are. Sexual morality, uh, and that's connected with the right attitude towards material things. Okay, they are linked. And simply getting along in love with one another. See, it's easy for a Christian community to compromise one for love, uh, you know, one for the other. But Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, insists that they both have a higher place uh, in a practicing Christian's life. You have put off the old man with his deeds, that in Jesus, the saints of God are different people. We're meant to become different. It's no longer I who lives, it's Christ who lives in me. Verse 10, you can imagine the Colossians reading this. I mean, this is, they've never met Paul and they're reading this. I mean, I'm, I'm imagining they were like, man, wow. Well, it's lucky he's an apostle because he is really hammering us. Um, verse 10, uh, you have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, the image of Jesus who created that person, okay? Just to, to put the, the, the right tenses and um, titles in place. Uh, this phrase, put on the new man, uh, Paul used a lot. And he used it for changing uh, basically the imagery of changing a set of clothes. We can almost picture a person taking off the old clothes and putting on the new clothes, taking off the old man, putting on the new man in Jesus. And that is, that is how we are renewed in knowledge because the new man is renewed in knowledge. He's hungry to know what God says in his word. He's not hungry to try and work out what he, how he can justify what he wants to do himself. Why? Because you understand that it's according to the image of him who created him. You understand that God created you. You want to come under how he wants you to live. Paul's clearly alluding to Genesis 1.27 here, when it said that God created Adam in his own image. Nevertheless, now that the first Adam is regarded as the old man, who now needs to be put off and discarded, because now we are created after the image of the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ. That's why in Christ we become new creations. Verse 11. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. The new man is part of a family and it favours no race, no nationality, no class, no culture, no ethnicity. It favours only Jesus because in this new family, Christ is all and in all. David Guzik says this, this work of the new creation not only deals with the old man and gives us the new man patterned after Jesus Christ. It also breaks down the barriers that separate people in society. Among new creation people, it doesn't matter if one is Greek or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised, a Scythian or a slave or a free man, all those barriers are broken down. Now, all of these barriers existed in the ancient Roman world and the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ actually broke them all down. And especially powerful was the barrier between the slave and the person who was free. But Christianity changes all of that. Okay, verse 12. 
Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. So now he's about to go and tell us what we're meant to, meant to do. Bearing with one another and forgiving with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. So the new person, the new man, and the new woman is elect of God. What does that mean? It means that God has chosen you and chosen you to be something special in his plan. Why? Because that person has chosen to accept Jesus and his free gift. Um, so what are we meant to do? Put on what? Tender mercies, kindness, humility. Each one of the qualities mentioned in this passage expresses themselves in relationships. A, a significant measure of our Christian life is found simply in how we treat other people and the quality of our relationships with those people. Um, let's see, William Barclay says this, It is most significant to note that every one of the graces listed has to do with personal relationships between man and other men and women. There is no mention of virtues like efficiency or cleverness, not even of diligence or industry. Not that these things are unimportant, but the great basic Christian virtues are those which govern human relationships. Tender mercies. Okay, if something's tender, it's sensitive to the touch. And, and, and the Apostle Paul wants them to feel that the slightest touch of somebody else's misery is something that you should experience too. Kindness. Uh, the ancient writers define Christotes as the virtue of the person whose neighbor's good is as dear to him as his own. That is so important. In other words, you're not only, you're only, you're not only concerned with your own goodness. You want your neighbors to be at the same level as yours. Not, well, I'm just doing the best I can for me and my family and I'll try my best to help you. But if I can't get you up there, then sorry, that's all I can do. No, that's not what this is talking about. The kindness here that Paul's talking about to the church in Colossians, different. Humility, which was not considered a virtue amongst ancient Greeks at all, is, is a, a, if you like, the parent, David Guzik says this, the parent of both meekness and long-suffering. Now, meekness shows how humility will affect my actions towards others. I'm not going to dominate them, manipulate them, coerce them for my own ends, even if I have the power and the ability to do it. Long-suffering shows how humility will affect my reaction towards others. Uh, I, I, I won't become impatient. I won't become short-tempered. I won't be filled with resentment towards the weaknesses and the sins of other people. So, uh, so you've got their meekness and long-suffering. You've got one about my actions and one about my reactions. Uh, then you've got bearing with one another. We're told to live forgiving one another. What? That's the pattern that Jesus set for us. Understanding the way that Jesus forgave us helps us become more generous with forgiveness and never less generous. When, when, when you think about the massive debt that Jesus forgave you and me and the comparative you know, microscopic size of the debt that others have towards us compared to what we have towards God, then basically you're just... I'm trying to think of a... I can think of a technical way to say it, but I just, I just think it makes you horrible to not forgive people. Um, I know that's not very technical, but to, if, you're gonna, if you're going to understand the massive 
massive debt that Jesus paid for you and accept his payment, but you won't, you won't forgive somebody else and they only did a tiny little thing to you compared to what we've done to God, uh, then you, you've got to examine in your heart and you've got to say, no, I have to forgive like Jesus forgives. See, God makes the first move towards us in forgiveness. Um, whereas the habits that we have as mankind is to only be reconciled if the offending party craves forgiveness and makes the first move. No, God doesn't act like that. He makes the first move. God forgives knowing that we will sin again. Um, and sometimes we'll do it exactly the same way as before. But mankind only wants to forgive if the offending party solemnly promises to never do wrong again. You know, we want to establish a different moral code than the one that God uses on us. Um, God keeps reaching out to, to, to men and women for reconciliation, even when people refuse him again and again. But what do we do as mankind? No, we don't continue to offer reconciliation. We offer it. If it gets rejected once, we go, well, I tried. I tried. I tried once. I can't do any more than that. No, sorry. That is not biblical forgiveness. Once having forgiven God, so forgiven us, God puts his trust in us and then invites us back to work with him as co-laborers. But mankind doesn't do that. Uh, we, we don't, if somebody's wronged us, we, we, we might forgive them, but we don't trust them again. We're like, well, I can forgive you, but I can't trust you again. Well, that's, that's the complete opposite of how God operates. So if that's how you operate, you need to stop doing that. Spurgeon said this, suppose that someone had grievously offended any one of you and that he asked your forgiveness. Do you not think that you would probably say to him, well, yes, I forgive you, but I, I, I cannot forget it. Ah, dear friends, that is the sort of forgiveness with one leg chopped off. It is a lame forgiveness and not worth much at all. <laughs> it's a great, a great uh, metaphor by Spurgeon, written over 120 years ago. Uh, verse 14. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Uh, love is the summary of all the things that's been described in this passage. Love perfectly fulfills what God requires of us in our relationships. Verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. The rule of the peace of God means that peace should characterize the community of God's people, and that peace is the standard for discerning God's will. Uh, okay, let's uh, verse. Let's read to the end of this section here. Uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The new man and woman in Christ walks in the word of God and also worships together with other believers. That's why when we don't worship together with other believers, we, we, we're not in community with the body of Christ the way that the head, Jesus, tells the body to be in community uh, in, in, in community and worship. And when we don't do that, that's when we have division. That's where we have disunity. Singing in church, it's not just something that like you know, a certain 
type of church came up with. But people go, well, why do they have to sing in church? And I don't like the singing part. I just like the message part. Well, that's because you're selfish, okay? Uh, because what you want to do is you just want to receive in the sermon, but you don't want to give in singing, okay? The, 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 the Psalms and singing uh, is something that David came out of his heart. The Psalms, they were songs that, that expressed a spontaneous joy and love. God uh, delights in creative, spontaneous worship. He has with David in the field and he still is with us now. And the emphasis is more on variety than on strict categories, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. In other words, Jesus says, I don't care. You like fast songs, slow songs, hymns, I don't care. Uh, they're all good. Just do it together and do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. The new man lives all of his life for Jesus. He only seeks to do things that he can do and may do in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he will persevere in the difficulty of doing all these things, knowing that he's doing them in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what do we observe from this first half of Colossians chapter 3? This, this is for me personally. Is everything that I do absolutely 100% in the name of Jesus? Is there anything that I'm doing that I'm not doing in the name of Jesus or that I wouldn't do if I attach the name of Jesus to it? And that's a filter in life that I need to get better at. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for all the options that we have to worship you together as a community of believers. Uh, Lord, I pray, Lord, for people who have been struggling with some of these so-called lesser sins. I pray, I pray, Lord, right now that people watching this and they've struggled with swearing, Lord, they, they, it's just that they, they, most of the time they're really good, but every now and then when they get really worked up and they get angry, it just comes out. And then they get down on themselves and, and they start to feel condemned and they feel like they're never going to get out of it. I pray, Lord, that you just bring them freedom through the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that they wouldn't be hard on themselves, Lord, right now. But I do pray that they would make a determination to rely on the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And that they would declare Philippians 4 over their life that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I pray, Lord, that they would have a determination to bridle their tongue through the power of Jesus Christ, not through the power of their own determination, but they'd be determined to allow your Holy Spirit power to work through them and in them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.